Okay, guys, bang, bang, bang. This is Alternative Data News. I'm Aubrey Hodges. Let's get into it. Okay, guys, let's get into it. Super excited about my guest today. Uh, he's got a really incredible background, doing some incredible things, nudging the industry forward on the alternative data side, you know, formerly of adaptive management, and then went on to go spearhead the alternative data efforts at Deccan Value Investments. Patrick Chan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Aubrey. Thanks for having me. Really uh, appreciate you pulling this together. All your podcasts have been really insightful and super helpful. So happy to be part of the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we've we've known each other for quite some time. We've had some really you know great conversations you know over the years. Um, first, I wanted to just kind of really dive into your background. If you could kind of give you know the the quick thirty second overview. You know, I, I want to kind of frame you know what you were doing while you were at Adaptive, which I think was a really unique um, you know value proposition, both working with um, you know, vendors on the supply side of alternative data, and then also meshing that and working with, you know, funds on the long, short, systematic quant side. So, you know, you know, kind of get into your background there and kind of, you know, what made that opportunity pretty unique and, you know, ultimately, you know, what were, uh, what were you doing? Yeah, sure. Happy to jump into it, Aubrey. So um, I started my career in banking uh, and then worked in private equity for the I would say the first three quarters of my career. And at that time, you know, data was really starting to come into vogue. So I was uh, connected with adaptive management, which, you know, Aubrey was a technology company that sought to empower investors um, who could not program with user-friendly tools to evaluate and gain insight from data. So it was a really unique opportunity because, you know, this is going back to 2017, most data sets, um, really weren't well known. So the data sets that we know about now, foot traffic data, the web traffic data, the most popular data set that everyone was using was car data. Um, but there, there was this you know, slow um, rolling ball of snow, I would say, of more investors wanting to use all these, all these different data sets. So since we were working with so many uh, data vendors uh, to provide data to hedge fund and private equity investors through a Bloomberg-like terminal, we would get access to all this variety of different types of data sets. And that was on the supply side. And on the demand side, we had the private equity and the hedge fund investors. So from there, just to be able to see all the data that different folks were using, um, how it was being implemented, and really, um, really seeing the value in the data sets with tools to evaluate the data set made it a really unique proposition. So since it was early on there, um, where most funds really needed help was just trying to apply the use case of the data um, to what they were investing in. So that's the effort that I led was really trying to help it. Um, the supply side who had data that needs to be sold and investors who wanted to purchase the data. It was really connecting that knowledge gap between uh, investors and the suppliers of data and helping them make use of it. Yeah, that's, um, that's super, super intriguing. Um you know, really, really great intersection point to be at. Um, you mentioned something around, you know, you know, knowledge gap and kind of sort of bridging, bridging the things there. 
what, what were some of the challenges that you came across while, while at Adaptive that just kind of backlog, you know, the process from, you know, vendors and buyers being able to connect? Yeah, I would say, you know, with going back to 2017, a lot of the fundamental equity investors didn't even know that data sets existed. They didn't know that outside of the large card vendors, the resellers of the card vendors, where it came from, they didn't really know that there was foot traffic data, web traffic data, mobile app data. Um, it was always out there, but being used for different use cases, maybe marketing companies were using it. So the first thing was just exposing to them, like if you're investing in the Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts, you can pretty get pretty good insight in addition to the credit card data, how many folks are walking into Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts buying coffees. Um, so just opening that up and just first surfacing um, to investors that there's just more data out there that they didn't even know of was really just even the first, I would say, large value add proposition to um, the hedge fund and private equity investors. The second thing is that most funds that we dealt with, um, since we were trying to be a Bloomberg-like terminal for alternative data, where it was easy, you log in your Bloomberg terminal, you log into you know, our product at the time, you had access to all this data, we gave you graphs and tools, made it easy to use. Um, the other thing is that most funds didn't have data science teams. I mean, now you could see that, you know, if you look on LinkedIn, and you talk to folks in our space, there's a lot of funds that are now trying to hire data scientists, data analysts, but before there really wasn't that personnel at funds. So the second thing was the second thing after you've already surfaced all the different things that you potentially could gain insight into, um, at least the data sets was now, how do you evaluate and test it? Um, and you know, with these data sets, you know, I've worked in banking. Uh, I'm sure mo most of the folks in our industry on the buy side have. We're really good with spreadsheets. We're super data savvy. The, the challenge was is that just the digital exhaust that's being generated right now is just too large for a spreadsheet. It just doesn't work. Your, your computer will crash. So you just need more powerful tools. You need to learn how to program to deal with larger data sets, um, to evaluate them, to test the predictive power of these data sets. So that was the second part of what Adaptive did. And what I did was surfacing the data sets, then evaluating and testing them um, to help investors um, determine the predictability of the data set. Because it's hard for them to really, you know, having worked at Deck and Value Investors, it's really hard for, you know, a fund to cut a pretty large um, five-figure check to buy data or even larger or, or maybe a little bit less. Um, if they can't, they're not going to buy it just on a whim. So we were surfacing data and we were also helping um, quantify the predictive power of data sets, which made the purchase decision a little bit easier. So we tried to be that grease, uh, you know, between um, the data suppliers and the data buyers. Right, right, right. And and you you shortly thereafter made the move over to Deccan Value Investments. What was, um, you know, what did you see happening, you know, on the buy side that you felt moving over to to a fund? Um, would allow you to problem solve for? Yeah, so I think it was kind of all related to that. Just, uh, you know, Deccan Value um, had not really used data before and they needed some help. They just need ideas of what they could possibly do. Um, so in terms of transitioning back, for me, when I started, again, I started my career in banking and then I worked in private equity. The reason why I started getting data in the first place was, you know, my old job was building DCFs. I was conducting due diligence on private equity assets, thinking about investing in them. And, you know, I built these models to model out the cash flows and I had drivers of those assumptions. And, you know, before I just had access to 
certain data sets. I mean, data sets that are probably less technical, like survey data, we would talk to management. Um, so the idea of just having more data to just be more thoughtful about what drives my financial model was really what brought me uh, into data in the first place. And so for me, going back to the buy side, it, it, was, it was less about switching back. It was more about transitioning back to what I've always done. Just I have a lot more knowledge of data sets that can help me get more transparency when I'm thinking about investing in a certain business. And in addition to that, you know, now that I know of what's out there, I have to find a way to be able to work with it. I can't just build this, um, you know, <laughs> toggleable, beautiful Excel spreadsheet. I now need to, because the data doesn't fit in a spreadsheet or the data sets that um, some alternative data sets don't fit in spreadsheets. So you need things that are just more powerful like programming to work with that data. So for me, it was, it was just about transitioning naturally back to what I've always done. I always felt that, you know, investors have always used data. Um, that's always been the case. It's, it's, it's a misnomer to not think that way. It's just that now um, there's just more data sets out there and there's just a lot more data that require, you know, specific new skills to work with that data uh, than before. Um, you know, I would say the analogy is if before you're building, uh, if, you're, if your job was to build houses, you were using a shovel. Um, now the goal is to build bigger houses. You need to do that at scale. You probably need to use a bulldozer or an excavator. So that's the analogy I think of when, uh, with, with um, using data for investing now. And that's why I transitioned back. Sure, sure. You know, one of, one of the, the theses is on the, uh, in, about the industry is that, you know, more buyers need to, need to come into the space. But obviously there's, you know, significant, you know, ramp up just from a knowledge perspective. There's the, you know, internal needs regarding building out the infrastructure. There's the talent side um, in terms of sourcing the correct talent to, to build the teams. There's the liquidity side in terms of how expensive this endeavor is to both build the teams, the infrastructure and acquire the data. When you joined Deacon, you know, I'm curious to know, like, what were your what were your initial conversations like as someone who's come from you know sitting at an intersection point between you know data buyers and sellers were you able to go in and you know free range pitch some of the previous relationships you had um, you know at vendors to Deacon on the backdrop that the data would help them you know create better processes some, you know complement some of the primary research that they were doing with regards to expert networks or you know, was it the opposite, you know, spectrum, you know, did they specifically give you mandates or, or, or have mandates based on the exposure that the fund had and you needed to go out and seek, you know, new data by new data vendors or, you know, suppliers? Yeah, so it was a combination of both. I think in terms of starting the role, it was a pretty great mandate to just build a great data platform, implement uh, data practice to really like what you were alluding to, Aubrey, complementing their uh, primary research of talking expert networks, doing surveys. So that, um, I guess, was the impetus to get the ball rolling and ensure the, the wide Rolodex of uh, data vendors, like how you, Aubrey, you and I have known each other for a few years now, going back to, to adapt our adaptive days a few years ago. Um, that was definitely part of the pitch. And that's something that uh, was really unique about working adaptive that I think most funds find really interesting. It's not you come from one data vendor and you just know card data, or you just come from a web scrape data provider, you just own a web scrape, you know, adaptive 
just built so many relationships with just so many different alternative data sets and, 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 and categories in a way. Um, but, you know, later on, of, of course, it is related to what we're investing in. Um, you know, we're, the fund is very concentrated. So there was very um, nuanced, specific questions about the names that we're investing in. So um, it did turn into now there is a mandate to go find data vendors um, to answer specific questions since, um, since the style was just such deep fundamental, uh, was just such a deep fundamental investment style. So there was that mandate. Um, and in terms of just uh, addressing um, where the industry is going, I would say, you know, you were talking about maybe the, maybe the space needs more data suppliers. And then you touched upon maybe it's the personnel. I think what's very complicated uh, with, and I think it's, it's already starting to be solved, you can see it already, is that personnel, fundamental investing and in using data science and this whole like, concept of quantumental, the, the challenge of it is it's a very interdisciplinary thing. You know, when folks went to school, they would go back, they would, you know, major in computer science or someone would go to school, they want to be invested in major in economics. Um, both very complicated disciplines, and it's just a very interdisciplinary type of um, role to be quantumental. So I think what you see now is that folks that want to be in the investment world, not only are they um, investing a lot of their, their, their undergrad time in, you know, maybe domain expertise in economics, but also spoken, spending a lot of time um, programming too. And I think you're seeing a lot more folks that are qualified for these jobs uh, to get this interdisciplinary um, skill set of being able to invest, think about businesses fundamentally, and also be able to program to deal with data sets to help drive those investment assumptions. And, uh, you know, I remember when I started out I, uh, in banking, it was just about building, you know, great spreadsheets, becoming very, very well adept at Excel. And you even see now with most sell side investment banks, they're encouraging a lot of their staff to program. So I think as, as, as time goes on and, and, and folks obviously move on, the traditional path from banking to business school to either hedge funds or private equity firms. Um, we're only a, a few years in, but I think as those folks start to grow their career, I think you'll see a lot more funds, um, whether it's hedge funds, private equity firms, uh, at least on the fundamental side, really uh, embrace data. And I would say even um, really go even further deeper into the data space and be more savvy about data. And I think that should just make it even a lot easier for uh, the whole industry, because data suppliers, you know, I would imagine, Aubrey, that you spend a lot of your time just educating folks about how you collect your data, um, all the different fields, the intricacies of it. Um, right. and some folks have trouble grasping that, but I think as more folks have experience with that um, and the skill set for that, it's just going to be uh, a much more fluid machine for all of us uh, involved in this space. Yeah, no, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um... You know, one of the things that we talked about, touched on earlier was, you know, how technical, you know, the industry is on the alternative data side. And then more so some of the suspicious or, or skepticism, you know, that folks on the buy side have about, you know, augmenting or utilizing data as part of their process to, to, to complement, you know, in existing uh, internal research or processes that they, that they tend to undertake. Um, do you feel like folks on the, on the buy side, whether it be private equity, hedge funds, uh, systematic quants, don't give themselves enough time to 
see some of the fruits of the labor uh, from alternative data start to pay off. It, it seems like folks tend to go in very exploratory, uh, but still, you know, wanting to understand, you know, how they can leverage it. But it seems as if, you know, if, if it's not working after a six-month time period, they, you know, they fold up shop and kind of revert back to, you know, the the previous habits or whatever at least worked for them over the past, you know, five years. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think I, I I definitely see that, and I I certainly feel that. Um, you know, I think when when data first started, and I think uh, if you were a first mover in this space, you could let's just take the car to data example. You probably could you know, potentially you could probably generate a lot of alpha. You probably could make a lot of money using the car data sets. Not only people were using it, you just, just like with anything, you had an information edge. Therefore, if your other competitors don't have that, you're effectively, you know, well, you have more, you have more tools in your arsenal to win, to win. So I think those days of using those data sets just uh, off the shelf, it's difficult to gain an edge to, to win against the competition. So now you have to, so that, that low hanging fruit is gone. You have to go to higher hanging fruit. Do you, do you work with more highly dimensional data sets that aren't ready off the shelf that you have to wrangle that you need a data science team to you know, build data pipelines. Then you have data scientists to, to evaluate them and effectively maybe even implement some complex algorithms. So that's higher, that's higher hanging fruit. The low hanging fruit's gone. So since that process is longer to, to what you alluded, it does take more time. And I, I think sometimes, um, you know, I always think about when, when you think about data science, data scientists, and, and you think about the word scientist in there, it's science. Um, you're conducting experiments. A lot of time experiments fail. Uh, sometimes it takes long times for experiments to bear fruit. You have to research it a lot. So, you know, I think some funds uh, with how it's being, um, reported sometimes, I, I would say in the news, whether it's on TV or in print, um, that data is this panacea to, uh, to fix all your investment research problems. Um, I think those days are kind of gone. Um, so it does take time and there is patience with it. And there has to be commitment and some fortitude to stick with the process and, 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 and um, you know, to stick with the process and really could be committed to using data in the process. And I think it all depends on the investment strategy. I think for long duration investors who have a long-term view, I think it's, I'm surprised actually coming from private equity that private equity hasn't really embraced it yet because just with long duration investing, you would think that these long-term insights is really well suited to help them source deals and then also help their portfolio companies um, perform better. Um, so yeah, I, I do see a lot of when, for the shorter term investors, the, the public market investors, when it doesn't yield fruit right away, folks sometimes do give up. Um, so I, I think it's just, it's, just, it's just another opportunity for other investors who might be longer duration investors to really uh, see the value in alternative data. Right, understood. I wanna, I wanna segue into kind of just talking about the industry you know, overall, you know, the, the, the industry alternative data is always pivoting. I'm curious to get your thoughts on uh, how, how you see the industry unfolding over the next two to three years. And, you know, what do you think is on the horizon, you know, at the moment? Yeah, so I think um, I was listening to 90 West podcast 
and um, the gentleman on that podcast was talking about the consolidation of investors, uh, different data vendors. Um, I think, you know, alluding to that podcast that you talked about, where the days of probably the data vendors where they only have one data set, it's not really much of a data differentiator. There's a lot of resellers of card data. There's many, there's more data providers popping up for mobile app data and so forth and so forth. So I think there are, um, you know, maybe the next edge folks can get is also the mixture of different data sets um, and, and trying to find a signal that's, uh, you know, been proprietarily mixed together. So if that's the case, then I think more data vendors are going to have to consolidate as well. Um, and in, in terms of the data sets that I think, um, you know, if they could come online, um, if, if they have predicted power where you would see, it would be easy um, it might be an easier sell than other data sets is that it's just with older industry type of uh, data sets that target older industries. So I think, uh, again, the days of investing in consumer facing type business data sets to help invest in consumers facing type businesses, that's pretty commoditized. Pretty much everyone knows about those data sets. Uh, but for higher, for more difficult types of uh, industries and investments like oil and gas, um, industrials, if there's data sets that can pop up there that have predictive power, um, I think there's a lot of demand for that, uh, but it is more difficult. And, you know, my guess is, I mean, I think the, the jury is out right now. Uh, we'll see if that's possible uh, with more data vendors coming with data sets like that, that'll have predictive power. Um, we'll see. My guess is probably not because just this was a lot less digital exhaust for those types of industries. Sure. Um Curious to get your thoughts. You know, the, the the industry is kind of segmented into various buckets, right? You've got your aggregators, you know, that that turn out insights, you know, M sciences, Yipits of the world. You've got your marketplaces like you know, Quandle, you know, Noma, Demist, and then you've got your event companies like Battlefin, New Data, Eagle, Eagle Alpha. You know, as the industry continues to evolve and grow you know, over the next year, two to three years, which of these models do you think stands to benefit the most from the, from the growth in the industry? Um, I would say the, in terms of benefiting, I think all the, uh, the guys that put together the events, the Eagle Alphas, the Battlefins, the new data, that's always super helpful. Um, it just gives a, I think there's still a lot of demand for folks to just network amongst, you know, professionals in the space. I mean, I can't tell you, you know, all the different, all the value that I get from attending these events, just learning about new data sets, talking to data vendors, because at the end of the day, the data vendors know their data set better than anybody. And um, to be able to talk to them, to learn about the intricacies of the data, it really gives, I think, the practitioner of using data a strong foundation in how the data works. And then it's just up to the practitioner to be really thoughtful and creative in, in, in applying it. So I think that the, the, uh, the event folks will still um, have a good spot in this space in the sense that it's just still early innings. And I think a lot of folks, or at least mid, maybe early mid innings, where folks are still trying to exchange best practices and notes and just their thoughts on, on how, um, how to best use data and just, and just talk about what's works and what hasn't worked. So I think those, those folks will continue to do well. Sure, 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 sure. Um, I want to I want to flip the scenario uh, a little bit. You know, if, if you were if you were, you know, going to endeavor into you know, starting a, a data company yourself today, 
um, you know, curious on where you see gaps, um, you know, that, uh, that a new vendor to the space could problem solve for? Would that be a specific location, you know, outside of the U.S., you know, emerging markets? Would it be a specific, you know, vertical industry? I think you mentioned, uh, you know, various ones um, earlier, or, or would it be a specific theme that we tend to see evolving, you know, ESG or, or other components um, along the, um, along the, the value proposition line? Yeah. So I think in terms of industries, I think the industries where data vendors, where there's a lack of data vendors with high quality uh, or, or very predictive data is definitely an older industry type businesses. So industrials, energy. Um, I think if, if vendors can come online there that have predictive power, uh, predictively powerful data sets there, I think that should be, uh, I think there's a lot of demand for that. Uh, in terms of data sets that are already widely known, but in terms of location, I think card data sets, I mean, card data is extremely powerful. The, it's just that it's very much commoditized right now. And, and most of the card vendors that target that space are, are US focused, although there's some in the UK and in various parts of Asia. But I think more coverage for investors that are investing internationally into retail facing or consumer facing businesses. Um, if card vendors could come online there, that'd be great, but uh, that might be difficult with all the different regulations with GDPR and, and so forth. But I definitely think there's a lot of demand for that. Uh, ESG has always, has always been super popular. I've seen a lot of folks um, ask about ESG data sets. And um, I, would say, I would say that's that's that. I would say it's ESG a lot of demand for consumer facing type data sets, but just in different locations outside of the US. And then also a lot more uh, demand for industries that generally haven't used too much data like energy and industrials. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree. I think industrial, some of the older industries, industrials, energy, um, it's very hard to, to package up. And so someone that can, can do that well and help you know, unlock some of the, the data and the insights would, um, you know, would create enormous value for, for folks. Um, you know, having, you know, having worked on the street for a number of years, you know, if you were to redo things over um, uh, and go back to, uh, to another fund, what are some of the, 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 the different steps that, that you would take, you know, having spearheaded, you know, alternative data um, you know, at a Greenwich based fund, you know, what are some of the, the processes that you would, you would implement, um, or some of the, you know, technologies you would leverage, um, to, to create, you know, better systems, you know, at, at some, some additional funds. Yeah. So what's great is actually, you know, when we, Arvin, when you and I met in 2017, you kind of had to build everything. You had to build in terms of supporting a data process, you had to build a pipeline a data pipeline, you'd have to connect it to a front end because, you know, potentially the investment team wouldn't know how to, you know, work with anything outside of like a, a GUI. Um, you had to build all that. And, and that, that required a ginormous CapEx investment to, to do that. Um, and who knows, it might have bared fruit, might not have bared fruit. But the great thing about it now is that there's just a lot of technologies where, you know, they're serverless. You don't really need to, um, you don't need to build that stuff from scratch. I mean, if you need a data lake, you can use AWS, you use Google Cloud, you can use Azure. Um, and, and 
as long as you understand how to use AWS, I mean, that could be, you know, one person, two person show. Um, you don't need as many backend data engineers as you had to. If you need to wrangle data, you might have needed, a, you know, multiple data engineers to help wrangle data and keep these, uh, these data pipelines up and running. But you don't really need that to do that either because you can connect it to Snowflake and Snowflake will will allow you to uh, really wrangle large data sets and do that in a uh, cost-effective way. And then from there, you can just connect it to a front end and there's lots of front ends. Um, you know, Tableau is a very famous one that most folks like. So I guess I guess now is really just really finding personnel that have the right skill set that can leverage all those tools. And it's just made, it's made it a lot easier to implement um, the processes that's required of maintaining a data pipeline. It's made it, it's, it's almost, it's, a, it's almost as if it's allowed, um, you know, it's allowed other investors maybe with lesser budgets to compete with the, the larger funds that have bigger budgets, uh, like the big pot shops. Of course, it, you might not be able to just because they have just so many more smart, they have a lot of smart individuals focused on that problem, but um, it's all these new technologies have definitely democratized um, using alternative data for investing. So setting up those processes, maintaining those data pipelines, find personnel to fit there. Um, and I would say the other thing is also just making sure that, um, that, that the investment team really understands the value of data when you, when you asked me before about the question about, um, you know, if it doesn't bear fruit right away to stick with the process and trust to give it some time to yield fruit. I think uh, that is in terms of fundamental investing uh, for folks that are, you know, not, I and mean, we can't talk about the systematic funds because they're very highly technically, they have a lot of uh, highly technical staff, but for the fundamental equity investors or, or fundamental credit investors, what have you, um, that might not be technically savvy. I think the most important process is really to put a process in place uh, where you're communicating with um, the investment team um, so they understand what the process is like, how long it's going to take, uh, and when it potentially will bear fruit. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, you know, having having a process and a plan and, you know, understanding that it, it's going to take time, um, you know, will we'll, we'll certainly, you know, benefit folks. And, you know, I think also just expectations that, you know, things should probably take, you know, 18 to, to 24 months longer than anticipated. Um, you know, do you think some of the challenges in the industry are, are primarily because, you know, folks are looking at, alternative data um, and they have a view that they need to generate, you know, X percentage return on their capital spent versus simply just, you know, creating better processes to, to complement the existing work that they're doing. Like there are two different, two different, um, you know, notions there, right? Um, and, and I tend to think that most folks are skewing towards if we're going to, you know, invest or acquire this data for however long that it is—three months, six months, one year—you know, we need to see a five to six x minimum return on our capital spent. Do you think that's the right, you know, approach and philosophy to take, or should it be more about, you know, complementing, you know, the existing process, you know, to 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 reach those returns eventually? Yeah, I think it's more. I think it's the latter. Um... Unfortunately, corporate finance teaches you about IRR and, and focusing on, you know, getting a return on capital as quickly as possible. Um, so that's how most of us are trained uh, classically uh, as investors. Um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of, I think that 
you know, when I think about data, I think about data as adding, and I can only speak from my background, coming from a fundamental investing background, um, and then and then becoming more technical and programming savvy later on in my career. I think, um, you know, the the best use of data in my mind is not trying to um, think of it as a golden goose um, that it's going to get you an answer. You're going to get five x on five x on your capital within you know I don't know six months a year. More along the lines of hey, you know. We have got a great investment team. They're super thoughtful. Um, they're great at deploying capital. Uh, they're very thoughtful when they deploy capital. They understand what's driving names, what's driving the investments. Um, but how can we, in a way, you know, if they're, can we arm them with more information? Can we help them, you know, can we just augment? It's, it's more of a partnership you know, where the data team is not, com is not competing in the investment team. It's more of a partnership. Like how can we help the investment team arm them with more uh, information um, to contribute to their investment mosaic. So we make the right calls when we're deploying capital. So I think that the focus more should be on, you know, we have an investment team that's deploying capital and we're trying to give them with more information. And if you have more information, if you're making the right decisions, then you should be able to deploy capital more effectively. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that's a, uh... That would be a pretty wise, pretty wise approach, and it would be great to great to see more people sort of de deploy that strategy. I think it would unlock some of the challenges that we see in the industry with with uh, with with buyers and um, you know and sellers being able to connect. If if that methodology was was at least um, you know given some time to unfold. So um, you know, last last question here. You know, I can imagine over the years you've had some really incredible conversations with folks, meetings, um, really developed a pretty robust, you know, network of, of people across our space. You know, who are some of the, the people that you continue to have conversations with or talk, talk with or people that you've worked with that you really admire for some of the work that they're doing to really help just nudge the industry forward? Yeah, thanks for that question, Robert. I mean, uh, not to, uh, to, to pump your podcast, but I would say even, you know, Aubrey, you and I have had a great connection over the years. I mean, you've been so thoughtful about the, um, the, the ad spend data. Anytime I have any questions about that space, I feel like I can always go to you and you're just so knowledgeable about that space. Um, so you're my guy in terms of, in terms of data sets for, for that area. Um, I would say in terms of uh, people that I've worked with um, directly, I would say Brad Schneider, um, who was a former CEO of Adaptive Management, who's now the CEO of Nomad Data, it's yep. just brilliant. Um, you know, Brad, I'm sure Brad, Aubrey, you know his background, but for others on the podcast, you know, Brad had, had uh, you know, graduated from MIT, had a very technical background, computer science and electrical engineering, but started working on the buy side right away. So when we were talking about in terms of personnel that are just um, really, that, that truly is that quantum mental blend, like really has a technical background, but has lived and breathed fundamental equity investing, that's what I think Brad is. Um, and Brad, um, you know, Brad had pretty much showed me how he implemented data in his, in his fundamental investment process. And the things that he was doing were very, uh, and still to this day, I don't see a lot of folks doing the things that he was doing. We're very clever and very nuanced. Um, so for Brad, I think Brad really, for me, was the individual that really tied fundamental equity investing in, in data for me. Um, and 
you know, I think he's just a very knowledgeable resource in this space. And I think he's one of the first to do it. Um, you know, he's been doing it for, I would say, over a decade now. Couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. I know Brad really well. Um, you know, he and I just, um, you know, we're probably going to connect fairly soon to, to, do a, to do an episode, but have a lot of respect for what he's uh, accomplished, you know, coming from the buy side and having sort of really, you know, taking this, um, taking this industry, you know, sort of under the belt and kind of moved it forward in a number of different ways. And what he's doing at Nomad is, is, um, is, is, is really incredible. Um, and so I, I couldn't agree with you more. He's uh, a great voice in the industry, a great ambassador, um, was actually just on a call, group call with him about 30 minutes ago before jumping on here. So um, you know, kudos to him and what he's doing over at, uh, at Nomad for sure. Yeah, he's going to be a great, great guest for you to have on the podcast. He's super knowledgeable. Definitely. I want to, I want to kind of segue. Let's talk, let's talk some shop and kind of get away from, um, from some of the, uh, some of the business, you know, conversation. I mean, you're, you're based in New York city, summer's approaching, you know, what are you looking forward to, to doing now that, you know, we'll have some time to, uh, to get back to old habits, like, uh, like folks used to do. Uh, gotcha. Well, you know, again, uh, Hijack your 90 West uh, uh, podcast. I'll say I'll, I'll be spending a lot of time watching my Brooklyn Nets. Um, for, someone, <laughs> for someone who grew up in New Jersey during the uh, J Kid runs and had to live with uh, those 10 years of nonsense, um, you know, with players like Devin Harris, it's good to finally see my team uh, kind of making some strides. Hopefully, we'll win an NBA championship. So I'll be spending a lot of time definitely watching them, keeping an eye on them. Um, and then, sorry, go ahead, Aubrey. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, that's, that's been pretty fun. I mean, even, even Kyrie went over and stomped the hardwood floor, uh, you know, uh, at the Celtics arena the other day, he caught some flack for doing that, but, you know, kind of hard not to when, when you're putting up those kind of numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And Kyrie is, uh, Kyrie's great. I mean, just watching him and doing the things he does. I mean, it's very rare that I'm kind of flabbergasted and I'll just rewind my DVR to see what he did. And I'm just like, I cannot believe Kyrie just did that. That's not even, physically possible yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, i was surprised to see i think uh i can't recall if it was uh if it was this year uh he actually dunked in a game i was i was kind of taken back by that but i didn't even know that the guy, the guy could even get up that high any longer um you're pretty great at crossing people over and shooting fadeaway threes but didn't know he could he could still jump off the gym like he can oh he can still go up i think he uh you know i think he just did it last night um closing out the Celtics, but uh, it's great that the uh, the Nets um, medical team has done such a great job with folks that have generally been injury prone with Kyrie, Blake Griffin. I mean, these guys that, like you said, who knew they couldn't, they, who knew they still had the ability to get up that high, but they're dunking now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that's, is a, there's a little pressure in, in, uh, in Brooklyn to kind of put on, uh, put on a, a spotlight show. So I think I think Blake uh, Blake still reminded people he's he's got a little bit of oil left in the tank. Um, you know, uh, one one of the things I'm curious about, you know, uh, is always travel. Curious if you have a, a favorite city outside of outside of the U.S. that you love visiting, vacationing at, or could go to multiple times a year. Uh, sure. Um, so my brother lives in Taiwan. Um, for most places, some folks won't think of it as a, uh, a destination where you potentially visit like long-term outside of there, but 
I think something that's a little bit less known about Taiwan is Taiwan has some beautiful beaches. They filmed some great movies out there. Um, so my brother has lived out there for a few years. He's a big time surfer. Um, I've surfed a little bit and uh, I also play a lot of golf and out there just the topography, it's the same topography, I would say for folks that haven't gone out there as uh, Hawaii. Um, it's just, it's just a little bit obviously further away for us in, in New York and the Northeast or even the United States in general. But I really love going out there, just spending time out. The weather's always great. The water's always warm. Uh, skies are always clear. So that's good by me. Yeah, absolutely. Any place, any place that's great for surfing has got to be a pretty, pretty incredible place year round, right? <laughs> that's, that's right, Aubrey, for sure. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, you mentioned golf earlier, you know, if you could watch any, you know, single sport, you know, every day, all day, 365 days a year, which, uh, which sport would it be? And, you know, who's, um, who's your go-to, I guess your go-to athlete overall. Uh, so I am <laughs> basketball is a, is, is, is a one B I would say golf is definitely one a, I watch a tremendous amount of golf and I think anyone, you know, I grew up in the uh, late nineties and early in the early two thousands. I would say anyone who doesn't say Tiger Woods, this isn't your guy. I think they're <laughs> nuts. So uh, Tiger's my guy. Hopefully he gets, uh, you know, recuperates quickly and we'll see if he has any gas in the tank, but uh, just like I wouldn't bet against Michael Jordan, I would never ever bet against Tiger Woods. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Curious though, if you were if you were putting all athletes into a basket, let's just say it's Michael Jordan, LeBron, um, Tiger Woods. Um, we got to throw in, you know, the the Peyton Manning, and then you know, let's just throw in a um, uh, good old guy from you know from the uh, fr from Boston, um, that quarterback who won a Super Bowl, you know, down in Tampa. Um, won't mention his name, given I'm a New York guy. But but who? Uh, <laughs> Don't mention his name. Same here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, who uh, who who do you think is you know has done the most for for sports over the last several decades out of out of all those people in that basket? Done the most for sports. Um, I would say. I mean. I think it's a different time, but like with social media, I think LeBron's done a great job with using his platform and, and really pushing for uh, positive things um, in this era. Um, but I actually, how I want to answer this, Aubrey, if you don't mind, is I would like to th think about this since you've mentioned such dominant athletes, how I would like to think about it is let's talk about the most dominant athlete out of those groups. And uh, I saw a crazy stat with Tiger. You know, you think of Michael Jordan being this awesome closer, obviously Brady's been I mean, sorry, I said his name. I, we probably shouldn't say his name out there. Um, you know, his conversion rates in Super Bowls. But I, I saw a stat with Tiger Woods that when he's leading uh, a tournament, he's 55 for 59. So <laughs> that is an incredible, crazy stat. And uh, I think Tiger actually, you know, we can actually tie it back to your, question, your original question. In terms of what's, what's done the most for sports, I mean, Tiger's, Tiger's, um, Tiger's, I would say value is not the right word, but what Tiger did for golf, I think is unparalleled. I mean, he grew that game tremendously. I think most golfers are super grateful for him just for getting all the eyeballs on golf that allowed uh, more advertisers to uh, aver uh, advertise and, and grew, you know, tournament purses. So I think Tiger has done a tremendous amount for a sport, probably more so than any athletes ever done for any of any, his or her sports. 
I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, I think Tiger from, you know, from a very young age has kind of taken that mantle and wore it well and has been an ambassador and he's really transformed the, 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 the sport of golf, um, not just playing it for, but for even people watching it and for young kids uh, being influenced and wanting to, to play. And even, you know, even guys like myself that are, are terrible at it, wanting to get out yeah. and socially do it, um, you know, and, and, and make a run at it um, and to be able to consistently do it. And then, come back from some of the injuries that he's had and still progress um you know it's been it's been pretty remarkable totally remarkable he's uh, yeah he's one of a kind for sure absolutely um favorite uh favorite app that you actually leverage and utilize every day that's on uh on your on your iphone favorite app you said yeah well, I live in New York City, so City Mapper is probably the best app I have on my phone. Um, <laughs> trying to navigate, you know, like you were saying, hey, I got, you know, commuting to Greenwich, I got to get to, I got to get to Grand Central. So yeah. uh, I live in Flatiron. I'm definitely the first thing I fire up in the morning is that City Mapper app, making sure I can catch that six. So uh, six train up to Grand Central. So I think without the City Mapper app, that's definitely the, uh, definitely gets the most time spent on my iPhone to, to make maybe a little bit of a data joke, but. Uh, it's certainly that's that's my go-to app, and it's definitely the most uh, valuable app to me. I, I would suppose living in the city. Yeah, can, pretty interesting. Um, and then and then last question here, you know, as uh, as we start to unfold and emerge from, you know, the pandemic, et cetera, um, as people start to go out and you know look to support local businesses, what's uh, what's one of your favorite restaurants that you think all people uh, in New York should uh, should put on their to-do list? Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, probably a staple, probably no, uh, no surprises here, but I'll say Carbone. Um, I've always been a gigantic fan of Italian food and something about that veal Parmesan at Carbone always gets me. So I'm excited to spend a lot more time at Carbone if I can get a reservation. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, uh, I think a lot of people will, uh, will be putting their names, um, you know, down for reservations soon. So you might want to, uh, might want to get a jump on that for sure. Um, Patrick, this is uh, this has been a delightful conversation. It's been amazing. Uh, thanks so much for coming on and doing this, and I'm um, super excited to actually you know see you in person at some of these live events again. Yeah, you're very welcome, Aubrey. I'm very excited to see you too. And thanks for putting this together because I think it really helps. Uh, you know, just really helps surfaces a lot of the issues and alternative data. And I just it, it, these podcasts just make um, for just much more thoughtful discussion. So thanks for putting these putting these together and having me on, Aubrey. Absolutely. Thanks again. And um, we'll have to do this again soon. All right. Thanks, Aubrey. Sure thing. Okay. Hey, guys, if you found this episode helpful, useful, and you enjoyed the content, you know, make sure to follow us on all the appropriate channels, subscribe to the cast, and leave a positive review. It really helps us continue to grow, you know, put out amazing content, and it helps other people in the industry, you know, find the platform and the channel as well so that we can continue to grow and keep putting out, you know, fresh related news and content every day. Until the next time, this is ADN, providing alternative data news always in all ways.